He is risen. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew is the first book in our New Testament, the first of the Gospels, and it's right before Mark and Luke and John. Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples. His real name is Levi, and he was a tax collector. And if you know anything about tax collectors in the days of Jesus, they were despised. They were considered sellouts to the Roman government because they collected money from their citizens and paid tribute to Rome. And oftentimes, the tax collectors collected a little bit more than what they were entitled to, and this is how they became enriched. But Jesus called Levi a tax collector and a sinner, and he became one of Jesus' disciples. He wrote this gospel somewhere in the mid-first century, maybe as early as 50 A.D., but certainly no later than about 70 A.D., and most believe that that's closer to the time that he wrote it. Today is Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday, and it's a time for joyous celebration, all about the resurrection of our Lord. And as you've seen, we greet one another with the phrase, He is risen. And you've heard the refrain, He is risen indeed. It's a time we gather as families, as brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, grandfathers and grandmothers. We reflect on the story of Jesus Christ. But sadly, this is fading from the world. My family was in Paris last year, and I commented, and I would remind you that we were there during Easter week, except for just a couple of stores that had Easter eggs and bunnies displayed, you would never have known that it was the week before Easter. We saw nothing, nothing that indicated that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead, nothing at all that indicated that he was Lord. A complete secular society. It was very sad to see. But sadly, this is the way the world is going. People are ignoring Easter more and more. They're not paying attention to the resurrection of our Lord. And as the world forgets or ignores his resurrection, it also forgets the reason for his death. We observe the miracle of the resurrection. We must also observe the significance of Jesus' sacrifice. So today I'm going to depart a little bit from the standard Easter message. All over, we're proclaiming that Christ is risen, and we do too. We proclaim the resurrection with joy, with gladness, with song, with worship. And often we come to church on Easter Sunday and we we talk about his resurrection. And we preach on it. We preach on the account found in the Gospels. We preach on the evidence that the tomb is empty. And many of you have heard this. So today I want to make a little change, just a little one this Easter Sunday. See, there would be no resurrection if there were no death of Christ. And today I want to tell you about Jesus' death and what it means for you. I want you to understand more clearly the implications of Jesus' sacrifice Because only then can you appreciate the wonder and the joy of his resurrection. 
To do this, I want to look at Jesus just before his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. Now, from John's gospel, we know that Jesus had celebrated the Passover with his disciples. Judas had left the group to go make arrangements to betray Jesus. Jesus had told Peter that he was going to deny him later that morning. And he told the disciples that he would soon be leaving them. But he tells them not to be dismayed. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. He explained he was going to prepare a place for them. And then he promised that he would send them the Holy Spirit. And then later on in John's account, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise. Let us go from here. So they leave the upper room, and as they walk on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus teaches them more about his relationship with his believers and their relationship with each other and with the world. He talks about the coming Holy Spirit and his impending death. And he gives what's called the high priestly prayer. And then they enter the Garden of Gethsemane. And now look with me and see what Matthew tells us about that. We're going to start with verse 36. Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we look into your word, Lord, I pray that your truths become apparent, that hearts are touched, Father, that the truth of Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross for our sins, paying the penalty that we owe, Father, a full understanding of what that means, 
And then the joy at his resurrection and the life that you've given us through him. Father, I pray that this is apparent to all and a cause for reflection, for rejoicing, for praise, for worship. For you deserve all glory. Father, please give me the words now as I preach. Father, to help me share your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we see in the story that while the disciples have accompanied Jesus, he leaves them, withdraws from them a little bit to pray. And he has chosen in particular Peter and the two sons of Zebedee to go with him. Now, Matthew has told us before that these two sons of Zebedee are James and John. He tells these three that he is sorrowful and troubled, even to death. Now, remember that he had just told them a little while ago, don't let your hearts be troubled. But here Jesus says that he's troubled. What does he know that they do not? Jesus tells Peter, James, and John to stay with him and keep watch while he goes a little further to pray. And he falls on his face, total submission to God the Father. And he prays the words we find in verse 39, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And so then he rises and he returns and finds them sleeping. And he admonishes them and he tells them the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he goes away again and he prays. And this time he says, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So he goes back and finds them asleep again. This time he lets them sleep. He doesn't disturb them. He knows they're tired. He goes away a third time and prays the same prayer. Three times he wants the cup to pass from him. But three times he yields to the will of God. And then he woke the disciples because his time had come. So why was he troubled? Why did Jesus tell his disciples not be troubled when clearly he was? Why did he ask to be relieved of this cup? And what was this cup? Why did he tell the Father, not as I will, but as you will? I'd like to try and answer those this morning, and I've divided my sermon into four parts. Perfect justice. Perfect submission. Perfect love. And perfect joy. So as we look at perfect justice, in order to understand what is about to happen, you have to understand who God is. Now, I could teach any one of God's attributes, there are many, and each one could be a sermon in and of itself. And in fact, I'm, I'm thinking that maybe I'll start a series preaching on the attributes of God to help us understand more of who God really is. But I want to focus on just a few of those attributes, and right now I want to focus on his justice. See, we know that God is a holy and righteous God. In 1 Samuel, we read that no one is holy like the Lord. In Revelation, we read that God alone is holy. His name is holy. His throne is holy. The angels declare his holiness. And we know that he's righteous. In the Psalms, we read repeatedly of God's righteousness. His commandments are righteous. His acts are righteous. And his judgments are righteous. 
This holy and righteous God is without sin. And this holy and righteous God created the world and he created man. We didn't evolve from some amoeba, some swirling gases, some creatures that walked out of the, the, the murky depths. He created us in his image. This means we have the ability to reason. We have the ability to act. We have the ability to love. And you know the story of the fall. God placed Adam and Eve in the garden and he gave them one negative command. Do not eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he told the man that if you eat from the fruit, you would die. And you know the story. Adam and Eve did. And sin was introduced to all of mankind. God told the man Adam that he would die. There is punishment for disobeying God. If not, God is weak. And if God told Adam that he would die and he didn't exact justice and bring about a due penalty for sin, then God would be a liar or one who gives empty threats. So there must be consequences. There must be consequences for our sin. There must be justice when a wrong is committed. Now we all understand the concept of justice. If someone does something morally wrong, he should be punished. This concept doesn't come from us. Mankind didn't develop this concept of justice. It comes from God. Remember, we are created in his image. We understand justice because God is a just God. And we often talk about justice being done or not being done because of the, the flaws in the justice system or the corruption in the government. We don't like to see someone get away with it, especially when we're the victim. But sometimes people do seem to get away with it. How about the bank robber that's acquitted in court? The drug dealer who escapes the police dragnet? The murderer who is never identified or himself is acquitted in court. And hence we have the phrase, he got away with murder. In 1989, 10 years before the Columbine massacre, a man named Patrick Purdy shot and killed five children and wounded 32 others before killing himself in a schoolyard in Stockton, California. People were distressed because he'd killed himself. They felt he'd escaped having to answer for his crimes. But because he was not held accountable, there was no justice. And this caused a, a large concern, especially among the parents and the, the people associated with the school. But because justice is ultimately from God, everyone stands to account for his wrongs. Everyone stands to account for his sins. If not here on earth, then before God, and ultimately before God, regardless of what happens on earth. See, God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. The prophet Jeremiah wrote that God's eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. The apostle Paul wrote that he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. There is nothing 
because if someone is rich or because someone is famous or because someone did good in life because they gave to charities, because they helped others, everyone will be held accountable for their sins. And Paul wrote that the wages of sin is death. There is no imprisonment. There is no time out. There is no purgatory. There is no payment for your sin. It's death. That is the wages of sin. Before a holy and moral and eternal and infinite God, sin against him, the only consequence is death. Now, God's justice for sin is exhibited in his wrath. We don't like to talk about God's wrath. We talk about God's love, but we don't want to hear about God's wrath. But God is a wrathful God. That is one of his attributes. You see, sin angers God. It's an affront to him. When we commit a moral or legal wrong, we are ultimately sinning against a holy and righteous God. This is why no one gets away with sin. God holds people accountable. Now, God's wrath is a terrible thing. And we all know about Noah's Ark and the great flood. God wiped out all of the population except for eight people on that ark because man's thoughts were continually on evil. Everyone paid that price except for the ones God spared in his grace, in his mercy. He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with brimstone and fire because of the evil in those cities. He did not let it continue. And you know of the plagues that God wrought on Egypt because Pharaoh refused to let Israel go, God's chosen people. All of the water turned to blood. There were infestations of frogs and lice and flies. There was pestilence on livestock. Thunder and destructive hail and fire. And then after that, locusts came and ate whatever wasn't destroyed by the hail and the fire. There were no crops left. Darkness so thick that people could not see their hands in front of their faces. And you've heard that phrase before. Couldn't see his hand in front of his face. It was so dark. They experienced this darkness. Nobody moved. You couldn't go anywhere. You just laid there. And finally, the death of all the firstborn in Egypt. Whether human or livestock. Except for those that were passed over by the angel those that were given God's grace. He brought plagues and death on Israel when they chose to sin. When they erected a golden calf to worship before Moses came down with the Ten Commandments. When they complained while they were in the desert. God caused fire to consume Nadab and Abihu when they didn't obey his commands regarding the offering of incense. When Korah, Dathan, and Abiram rebelled against Moses and Moses' authority. God caused the earth to open up and swallow them and their followers. When Aaron and Miriam challenged Moses' authority, challenged the authority of God's appointed prophet, God caused Miriam to become leprous. And when Uzzah dared to touch the Ark of the Covenant as it was being moved, 
God struck him down. Even with all this, God's wrath will be greatest against those who oppose his son and oppose the gospel. Listen to what the psalmist says. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Paul said of the Jews who were hindering the preaching of the gospel that they were to experience God's wrath. A worldwide outpouring of the wrath of God is even now stored up for those who reject him. In Revelation, we read of the wrath of God that comes upon the earth. Peace is no more. There are wars, there are murders. Disease and famine abound. There's economic hardship. There are earthquakes, volcano eruptions, severe climate changes. Any of this sound familiar? Now, I'm not saying we're in the last days. Jesus was clear that no one knows except the Father when those days are coming. But it's not hard to imagine the things that will occur as we see them unfold around us. Now, let me give you just a moment, a sidebar on climate change. They talk about global warming or climate chaos. Now, I don't know if it exists or not. Could be getting warmer. Could be cyclical. I, I, I don't know. Scientists, they don't agree whether it exists or not. They go back and forth on it. But here's what I do know. Humans do not cause climate change. Humans do not cause global warming. Humans do not um, have charge or change the patterns of the weather. I've read the Bible through many times, and nowhere do I find where God ascribes or gives the power to man to control the weather. It's God who causes the rain to fall. It's God who causes droughts. He stores up the snow and the hail. He commands the clouds. He sends forth the lightning. If you've never read Job 38 through 41, I urge you to read it. And read it regularly. For there you will see God's awesome power. And he talks about his control of the weather. Now see, Jesus' disciples knew that man doesn't control the weather. You recall when Jesus calmed the storm on the sea. They asked, 
What sort of man is this that even the winds and see obey him? They don't fall for the lie that man causes climate change or global warming or climate chaos or any of those things. This is in the provident hand of Almighty God. And when we say that we control the weather, that we control these things, it is an affront to God. We are making ourselves out to be God. And this brings his wrath. And I think that's never more evident than what we see coming in Revelation. And what will happen to the waters and the earth? What will happen in the skies? It's a terrible wrath of God that will come upon an unbelieving world and in demonstration of his sovereign power and the power that belongs to him alone. Now, time doesn't permit me to list all of the wrath that God will pour out on a rebellious earth that's rejected its maker. But to get even a taste, hear what the prophet says of those who will be living in those last days. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and the rocks. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? The sin of mankind brings God's wrath. Your sin brings God's wrath. My sin brings God's wrath. It is of this wrath that Jesus knew when he prayed in the garden that night. He knew the wrath of God. The terrible, awesome wrath of God was to be poured on him. This is why he was sorrowful and why he was troubled. He knew what it would be like to feel this wrath with nowhere to hide. Jesus Christ, God himself, part of the Trinity from eternity past and eternity future, was about to take on the very sin he despised. He was about to take on God's judgment, his judgment against you and against me. He was about to feel his father turn his back on him. Let's look at Matthew 26 again. I'm going to turn your attention back to verse 39 and to 42. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. And we know that he prayed this a third time. And this leads to my second point, perfect submission. This was a time of temptation for Jesus. Satan was beginning to unleash his full fury on him. But Jesus does not yield. 
John had told us that Jesus had said, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And why not? Why did Jesus submit knowing that he was facing the wrath and separation from God? This terrible, awesome wrath. Because this was God's plan all along. Just a little further in Matthew, Jesus declares that all that has taken place was so the scriptures of the prophets would be fulfilled. Beginning with Genesis and throughout all of scripture, God declares what must take place. That a savior would be born and would suffer and die for the sins of mankind. This was God's sovereign decree from before time began. In his gospel, John tells us that Jesus said he had come for this very hour. And many times Jesus has predicted his own death. Jesus submitted. And he submitted because of love. And this then moves me to the third point. We have perfect justice. We have perfect submission. And we have perfect love. It was the perfect love of God for us. You know, all know the verse, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You've heard that. You've seen John 3.16 on football games. You've seen John 3.16 on the bottom of in and out cups. You've seen John 3.16 all over. This was God's plan. And he sent his son to die for us. And Jesus knew this. John also wrote, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world, so that we might live through him, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favor. And this is Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul wrote, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The love of God for his creation, for mankind, for you and for me. It was the perfect love of the son for the father that brought Jesus to submission before God. Jesus said, I do as the father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the father. Humble obedience to the point of death on a cross. It was the perfect love of the Father for the Son. Jesus said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. When Jesus was baptized, God said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the Mount of Transfiguration, he said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus was loved of God. It was the perfect love of Jesus for the church. 
Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Now, there is a Bible teacher who's written some books. And he says that everyone will be saved in the end because of God's love. That God's love is greater than God's wrath. It is superior to God's wrath. So in the end, everyone is saved because of this love of God. It doesn't matter what you've done. Now, this might seem a comforting thought. But what does that do to God's justice? What does it mean that even the worst murderer in history, who was not sorry for what he did, who sent millions to their deaths with no mercy, who killed himself rather than face justice, it means that he does not face the eternal wrath of God. He may face some temporary wrath, but not an eternal wrath. He's merely dead, but no more so than the greatest heroes who ever lived, including those who fought to save nations from this man's reign of terror. It means he will live no less than the martyrs who died following Christ. It means he got away with it. That's what it means. It means that in the end, there is no justice. There is no justice from God. So what then does it say about our God? Well, it means that God's a liar. Because if he says the wages of sin is death, but in the end you'll live, then God was lying. But the Bible tells us that God cannot lie. So what then? Well, if God has declared that he hates sin and that he will punish us, And as justice is perfect, then sin must be punished. Remember, God's eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. And he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. There is no partiality. By laying our sins on Jesus... God's justice was fulfilled. There was justice. It wasn't nullified. And it wasn't ignored because of the thought that God's love is superior to God's wrath. No, the penalty for sin was paid once and for all. Jesus paid the penalty on the cross. No one, no one escaped justice. But Jesus took upon himself the justice of God's wrath. The wrath that you deserve. The wrath that I deserve. And he knew he would do this when he prayed that night in Gethsemane. This is the perfect love of God. That he laid down his life for his friends. God's perfect justice was carried out through Christ's perfect submission Because of their perfect love. And then this results in my fourth point. Perfect joy. Rather than facing God's wrath, we share in God's love. Imagine a person who's guilty of a crime. 
He faces justice in court, and there's no doubt to his guilt. He waits to face the penalty to get his just desserts. But imagine how he feels when he's told, you're free. You're free from this. Someone else has paid your penalty. Not because you were really innocent, but rather because you're really guilty. And justice demands payment. But someone has paid for him. Now, I would imagine the guilty person would be ecstatic, wouldn't you? I mean, he'd be ecstatic. He's free. He doesn't have to pay the penalty. Well, so are all whose sins are forgiven because Jesus took the wrath that justice demands for our sins. And this is joy. The guilty one who's set free does not worry about the future. He's free. The guilty one who's set free doesn't complain to the judge because he doesn't have money. He's free. He doesn't dwell on his poor health or his handicaps. He's free. Being free trumps everything else. He doesn't have to pay the penalty. But our joy is incomplete if Jesus did not rise from the dead. It means it's all a lie. It means the disciples lied. The Bible lied. The Gospels are a lie. Everyone that claims they saw Jesus, it's a lie. It didn't happen. We have nothing on which to base our hope. And if he didn't rise, then neither do we. If death still claims him, then it still claims us. Because then the penalty has not been paid in full. If we still have to die, Jesus didn't pay the penalty. But that he rose means the payment is done in full. This is why the resurrection cannot be separated from his death and his burial. It cannot be separated from the gospel. Resurrection is the gospel. If Jesus didn't rise, we still die. We still pay for our sins. And all we've done is believe in a dead guy. That's it. That's all we've done. There are untold numbers of dead guys who sacrifice their lives for others. Our cemeteries are holding them. Medal of Honor winners who threw themselves on grenades to protect their comrades. Medal of Honor winners who charged machine gun nests and took out the threat. Police officers, firefighters who sacrificed their lives protecting us, protecting their communities. They're still dead. And the people who sacrificed or the people whose lives they sacrificed to protect have died too. And see, we give them respect and we give them honor. But there's sadness at the death of a hero. I've been to police funerals. I've known police officers who were killed. I can't tell you any time, even though they, they gave their lives to protect others, I can't think of a time where there was joy at it. I can't think of a time that it brought me joy. We don't celebrate their deaths. 
But if the one who sacrificed himself for us is alive, then we too will live. Jesus told his disciples not to be troubled or afraid. He knew what was going on that, that week. He knew how they thought about it. The triumphal entry and then all the confrontations that happened during that week leading up to the Passover. He told them he would be leaving them. And they were troubled. And he knew this. He said, do not let your hearts be troubled. He tried to comfort them. He told them he would send his Holy Spirit to them, the comforter. He told them he was going to prepare a place for them. He told them that he would return. He told them that in a little while the world would not see him, but then they would see him. And he had told them many times that he would suffer and die, but he would rise again. And after his death, they were dejected. They were afraid. They were hiding out. But then on that Sunday morning, he appeared to them. He was alive. Imagine what they felt. They saw him die. Now they see him alive. This is joy. He is alive. This joy is available to you. To obtain it, you must believe. You must believe that you are a sinner, that you deserve God's wrath, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth and lived as a man, perfectly and without sin, that he took the wrath of God that you deserve. That he died, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day that he is Lord. Now the choice is yours. You either accept Jesus for who he is and what he has done, or you accept God's wrath for your sins. Accept Jesus or accept God's wrath. Now you may say, Pastor Jeff, I'm not a sinner. I'm a good person. I work hard at my job. I'm a good husband or a good wife or a good father or a good mother. I give to charities. I do good works. But the Bible says that if you've broken one of God's commandments, if you've committed one sin, then you are a sinner and you deserve the justice of God's wrath. So the question before you is joy or wrath? Which is it? Which will it be? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, it is amazing, astounding, awesome. Father, words leave me to describe the magnitude of your sacrifice. That Jesus Christ died to appease your wrath, to fulfill your justice. No one Father, no one gets away with it. But all praise goes to you that Jesus took that justice. And he did so willingly. He submitted to you because of love. Because of your grace, your mercy, Father. To reconcile us to you. And Father, he is alive again. He has risen from the grave. And because of that, we know that we too will rise. That death is defeated. Father, help us to grasp this. Help us to cling to it. Help us to understand that all else pales beside us. 
that we will live because of Christ. Father, in all this, we worship you and praise you. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Amen.